the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. I want to say a good afternoon to you as well on this Monday edition of Lifeline. Glad to have you in the house with me on this yet another gorgeous Monday afternoon. What can we say about the weather that we have here in the Bay Area? Um, We are highly favored. We are blessed. We are privileged. And we ought to count our blessings for um, such wonderful climate that allows us to just be more optimistic, more passionate, more committed, more driven, more thankful um, every day. Welcome to the Monday edition of Lifeline, as I said. And I am your host for the next two hours, Jesse Gistan, in the seat with you, I'm ready to talk about the issues that make for our everyday, our calling, our purpose, our walk, our work, our wealth, uh, and the glory of our God. You know how we do it? The number is one 367 In a lot of ways, the topics we want to deal with today are fairly open. If you want to give me a call and you've got a, a thought or a idea or some issue or some burden or some challenge that you need to proffer or have... Um, you know, field it my way to help you think it through. Be glad to hear from you. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. You know the the most salient part of the program is that we get to talk about it, get to air it out, field it, deconstruct it, analyze it, determine whether or not it is uh, it has the merit of an open forum discussion topic, etc. So one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Been thinking about a lot of things as is. My uh, basic um, portfolio characteristic, if you will, thinking about a lot of things. And one of the things that was coming to my mind is the question, especially in the culture we live in, where we are taking basically every human being's opinion, every individual's uh, notion, every uh, particular person's ideas and almost codifying it into a political agenda, if you know what I mean. I mean, when you think about uh, all of the different positions that people hold in the world today, uh, one of the areas that I'm I'm digging deeply into right now to work through on a more theologically appropriate level is the whole idea of identity. A critical concept that has made its way all the way up into politics, as you know, and um, and people uh, find themselves gravitating to, to to different groups. That's just the nature of, of humanity uh, and, and identity, group identity, personal identity uh, now is, is is carrying the day everywhere. And uh, and the question that often is raised is, so what will become of the balkanization and the individualization and the compartmentalizing of everybody's own individual right to assume or assert or propagate or propose uh, who they are, what they are, what they feel they are, what they think they are, what they want to be, et cetera, and how that the way our government is going is that it is leading towards a kind of, uh, how can I put it, irresponsible, incoherent, uh, policy-driven pattern of of, of seeking to, if you will, affirm everybody's notion about what they believe things to be. You couldn't have more of a kind of Babylonian confusion 
foundation for a society of cacophony uh, rooted in notions that don't have any real empirical or even logical or rational basis behind it. Um, one of the areas we will pour more deeply into down the line will be, again, uh, gender paradigms, gender identity uh, assumptions and arguments that have now reached the, the heights of politics, um, as well as uh, race paradigms and and you know, all kinds of ideas and notions around that. Both, in my opinion, have uh, fallen prey to a kind of mythical framework that doesn't really constitute any real uh, basis in, in fact, but have been foisted on us and used as labels and, and terms and philosophies and worldviews by which people now associate themselves with, with different categories of, again, again, idioms. That that really, when you look at the root of them, um, are are simply designed to destroy any kind of solid biblical worldview. And if you're a believer in Christ and don't recognize that, if you get attached to uh, a critical race theory that is not rooted in a sound biblical uh, and historical uh, 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 philosophy, then you're setting yourself up to abandon the gospel. You get involved in a... uh, and again, a gender paradigm um, or a justice paradigm as all kinds of folks are, are morphing and, and gathering and engaging in these different, uh, uh, you know, causes, the cause of gender, the cause of, 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 of justice, the cause of race, big inflammatory subject matters that dominate your colleges and uh, permeate your social uh, spaces and, and then also um, are making their inroads into the church, as you know. Um, and if you don't have a biblical worldview that actually can speak directly into these matters, um, you can be a, you can be a, you can be made to be a wash in terms of your faith, having no relevant or uh, evangelical or apologetic or theological um, vitality uh, in terms of an answer to a lot of these aberrant ideas. It's kind of where I'm at, I'm at right now. And so here's the question that, that I'm going to pose to you that you'll get a chance to to um, either argue or affirm or deny. I don't care, really. I just want to kind of cultivate our thinking around some ideas. I, I, I posed this question about a week or two ago to my congregation on a Friday Bible study as we were working through Ephesians chapter one, which gives us 10 items or characteristics of the wealth benefits of the people of God who are in Christ and therefore have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. 10 concrete things God did for those who are in Christ, by which when we comprehend those things and understand those things and employ those things, we can actually know our identity in Christ and not be stripped of the value and blessings that are in Christ that are ours by a world that not only wants to deny the relevance of the gospel, but deny the reality of Christ and deny the reality of God and therefore deny the reality of you and I and themselves. It's kind of a nihilism that we are headed down in terms of a trajectory into the abyss of uh, Babylonian cacophony, if you know what I mean. Well, maybe you don't. Well, here's a here's a thought then that I'm going to pose to you. By the way, uh, hopefully at the bottom of the hour, I'm, I'm hoping to have a guest on that's going to uh, be of some intrigue. I think you're going to be uh, at least uh, stimulated in your thoughts around his desires. A young man I met a couple of weeks ago <clears throat> who's running for the school board, and I hope, hope Todd Davis can make it in so we can have a conversation around his desire to contribute to the culture by way of being a believer in Christ and therefore also then trying to impact our downline, which is our our children, which are precious to us. If we don't leave them a legacy of some kind of substantial path of righteousness by which they can um, uh, grow and mature and prosper and grasp the opportunities that life would render for them so that they can give um, their their lives to something noble and productive relative to their call to Christ. Um, 
then we've left them in the cold. And I think you would agree with that. Uh, Todd Davis is, is going to be talking with me hopefully shortly. And we'll be talking about um, local elections that are taking place here in the Bay Area and why it is that uh, reasonably sound and rationally thinking and, and hopefully uh, men and women who have a healthy, uh, substantial biblical worldview can 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 occupy spots in our culture where uh, many of our children are uh, subject to, and we would want them to have the best opportunity as possible. So that, that should be coming up uh, in the next 30 minutes or so. But here, here is the, here is the question that I raised a couple of weeks ago in our Bible study that I want to pose to you, because this was around something that happened with one of my daughters that she shared with me uh, a couple of days ago, but I'm going to tell the story here only after Um, I pose the question, does the God of the Bible engage men with promises of rewards and judgment as a motivating factor for coming to him, to love him and to obey him? Does the God of the Bible Engage men on a propositional level, on a level of overtures and in, 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 a, in a body of prophecy that we call the word of God. Does, does God engage men with promises of rewards and judgments as a motivating factor to come to him, to love him and to obey him? Yes or no? When you read your Bible, does God follow the mode an operandi of the basic secular contemporary philosophical culture that would basically say, don't, don't try to manipulate anyone on any grounds whatsoever, uh, whether promising rewards and certainly not driving people to do the right thing by threatening them with punishments. You see where I'm going? I'm actually once again, reminding you that there is an underlying tenet on the part of our culture and our world permeating almost every form of rhetoric, discussion and dialogue in any context, any discipline, school, science, the arts, entertainment, whatever, that would basically tell you and I it is wrong for us to try to persuade men to do things that are right on the grounds of promises of rewards or threats of judgments. And certainly the idea of coming to God to love him, to obey him. But does the Bible from Genesis to Revelation speak to men and engage men on the grounds of promises of rewards and judgments? Now, if so, if it does, and I know that it does, I don't know if you do, but if it does, why do some say as a so-called more loving approach that to get people to do something you want them to do, you should not threaten them? with consequences, or lure them with rewards. And how does this construct of thinking, which I think is both awfully hypocritical and actually diabolical, i.e. parents and anti-authoritarian therapists and psychologists, etc., what is the fundamental problem with uh, the spawning of the idea or the concept that you should not, should not talk to people in terms of rewards and punishments as a motivating factor to do what's right? What's the underlying assumption for that kind of prohibition? I can tell you what the implications are. I can tell you what the consequences are before I go to break. If we were all to buy into the notion, and I, I kind of sense it as an intrinsic value with a lot of people, you know how we know? They say, don't judge. Don't judge. Don't judge anything. Don't, don't determine whether or not what a person believes or holds or thinks or does is right or wrong. And therefore, don't try to compel them to a right or wrong as you would assert it. And definitely don't try to compel them to a right or wrong, as you would assert it, on the grounds of rewards. And finally, don't do it on the grounds of judgment. Don't tell them that heaven is theirs should they appropriate the right response to the revelation of God. And hell is theirs should, their, hell is theirs, should they not. 
That that would be the kind of ultimate promise that biblical truth would uh, would have us to entertain, would it not? What will you do in the end thereof when you pass away from this life? Will your life have? Will your life on this earth have uh, uh, assumed and merited? an appropriate response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the overture to come to him, bow the knee to him, trust him and live for his glory. So that eternal life is yours or will the sum total of your life be one of having rejected God, rebelled against him, opposed him, denied his gospel. And thus when you face him, though you deny him, when you face him, your eternity is periled with absolute horrific doom. In other words, when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, that's a threat if you don't follow the recommendations of Scripture. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a promise of reward should you capitulate to the overture of the gospel. See, there you go. But we can't do that because the underlying assumption is that mankind has a problem. Well, you better know he does. You better know he does. I'm going to share with you a story that came to me from one of my daughters recently that that actually depicts this concept very clearly. And then if you're not tracking with me right now around the question, does God does God communicate his revelation, his 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 immutable, unchangeable revelation of truth given to us in the word of God and uh, via his people who represent him in overtures and 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 uh, as it were, propositions of biblical truth, rendering to mankind a promise of reward or judgment. If he should comply with God's standard reward, if he should not comply with God's standard Judgment. Is that an appropriate mechanism to get men and women to do the right thing? And if it is, does that principle apply in other areas of life? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. We're gonna press into it. I want to know if you are consistent. Christian thinking man or woman. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistan. Really glad to be in the house with you moms and you dads and you uncles and you aunts and you brothers and you sisters. Glad to have you on the program. We will be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back at the time, 524, on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let me continue ferreting through the basic proposition that I've shared with you in the opening of my monologue. I, I have been uh, long aware of the drift, the, um, the patterns of our culture, and, and even the cyclical patterns that the Bible says reoccur from time to time, although we are all teleologically uh, driven towards an ultimate climactic end. We just are. We are people of an eschatological destiny, if you know the terminology. There is an end. It's not only an end to this world, there's an end to your life and an end to my life in terms of our physicality. That's without a doubt. I bury people enough to know that old and young, we all will have an end. And the reality is, is if that end does not matter to us, then the process that we are presently in now that we would call life um, can be shaped and molded any kind of way we want to. That can be on the basis of truth or on the basis of mere opinion or on the basis of assumption. And those uh, truth claims, opinion claims, assumption claims can be valid or invalid based on just the laws of logic. Or they can be invalidated based upon uh, uh, one's own uh, prejudices and maybe uh, scales of judgment, uh, assessment, uh, determination. You, we can we can make a thing invalid uh, from the standpoint of a larger group consensus. We can basically do what America has been doing for many, many years, basically ridding ourselves of a God consciousness, ridding ourselves of any sense of a personal God to whom we must answer, ridding ourselves of a uh, accountability to his set of maxims as a Lord and ruler over our lives. This is basically kind of the, the agenda of your secular atheist, and that is to rid themselves of any kind of master but themselves. And of course, if you know where that's going, that is basically rooted in the kind of humanism that came and uh, toppled our first parents. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, humanism became the God they exchanged the true and the living God for, and that is self. You see what that got them. And this is where you and I are today. So I basically asked the question, does God engage men with promises of rewards and judgments as a motivating factor to come to him, to love him, to obey him? And if they do not respond to those overtures, commands, imperatives, we don't mind that those of us who are used to being God's servants, he can tell us what to do. He can command us. He can threaten us. He can promise us. He can woo us. He can draw us. God can do whatever he wants to do because we believe him to be intrinsically righteous and just. And therefore, uh, we never question or condemn or, uh, if you will, uh, impugn his motive for what he does. He he is just in what he does. And we will live with the implications of that as servants of the living God. We happen to believe that when God says, obey me and it will go well, don't obey me and it won't. <laughs> That's a, ladies and gentlemen, that is a persuasive argument for rewards and judgments. And is not your Bible filled with those kinds of precepts? Yes, it is all over the place. I could quote dozens and dozens from Genesis to Revelation where God deals with us in that consistent pattern. If you follow these principles, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. That's the way the word of God lays it out. Now, here is the reason for which I want to uh, impress upon you not to be swallowed up by the, the, the mindset, the, the worldview of the secular culture, particularly the one that is dominating us with these different categories and segmentations and, and decompartmentalizations of balkanized uh, thoughts. Don't get wrapped up in different political entities that are telling you that this particular topic is so critically important that if you don't get it, um, you are missing out on life. Don't get wrapped up, overly involved in, again, the gender arguments. Don't get overly involved in some of the justice paradigm arguments. Don't get overly involved in some of the critical race theories. Don't get overly involved in a whole bunch of the things, whole bunch of arguments and debates and politicized issues that are so prevalent today that um, they they are knocking on your door like the proverbial people in the days of Lot wanting to bust it down so that it can know you, abuse you, control you, and change you. You and I need the angels of the Lord to protect us and blind them so that we can be kept from that kind of abuse by the grace of God. By the way, that's called being sealed in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, one of the 10 uh, wealth benefits in the package of the believer that God uh, deploys to make sure that we don't corrupt under the pressure of a world system that is constantly bombarding uh, God and biblical truth as to what reality is. Now, let me ask you the question. What would be the consequences falling out if, in fact, we did buy into the notion that you can never tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong? You can never tell somebody that their thing is right and wrong. What would be the consequences if we followed through in the notion that we just let everybody do what they felt like doing? What would be the consequences? What would be the consequences if we developed and produced a whole society of men and women who were basically from the time that they were born to adults had the right to do whatever they wanted to do because there's no such thing as right or wrong, only that which is right in our own eyes, as Proverbs 1635 puts it. What would be the consequences of it? Would you know? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Let me see if I can add by a parable my point before we take another break. Here it is. My daughter is an EMT. I think that stands for an emergency medical transit uh, system. She's uh, going to school to be a, a, a phys- emergency medical technician. My, my uh, engineer just corrected me on that emergency medical technician. That makes sense. Um And uh, she's headed to PA school, trying to be a physician's assistant. And she tells me about all of these amazing events that go on when they get calls. And she'll work in Concord, and she'll work uh, in Davis, and she'll work in Berkeley, and she'll work in Oakland, and she'll work in Richmond. She came home the other day, and she said, Dad, this this is an amazing story. I'm going to tell you what happened. Uh, We got a call from a lady who called 911 which means 
all three forms of first responders came out. Fire department, police department, and emergency medical technicians. Got it now. They all came out. And guess what the call was about? It was about a mother whose son had a tantrum in the store. Nine-year-old boy. My daughter will correct me if it's six years. I couldn't believe it was six. But nine-year-old, six to nine-year-old, having an absolute tantrum in the store. And the mother was so afraid of the boy that she called 911. My daughter said, we're, we're, headed to the, we're headed to the location as if somebody was dying. <laughs> we get there, and it might have been the police or the fire department, and they were restraining the boy from the back. You know, they know how to do it. Restraining the boy, as if the boy was about to blow up the store, as if the boy was about to set the whole city on fire, as if the boy was about to murder hundreds of people, as if the boy was about to kill himself. Now, Here's my point. Uh, Barring any kind of medical problem, psychological or emotional, et cetera, what do you think is that boy's problem? (laughs) One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Now, now I want you to think this through because I'm trying to make a point here (laughs) about right and wrong. (laughs) about morals and ethics, about boundaries and framework, about the necessity of disciplining our kids to know reality from figments of imagination and to actually know the sphere and scope of their responsibility as human beings in the area of even their emotional makeup, even their desires for this, that, and the other thing. Do you know how much money was spent in that 9-11 call? Do you know how much money was spent in that one hour 9-11 call where a fire truck show up, police cars show up, and emergency medical technicians show up because, you know, they all care? Do you, do, tell me what was missing. The boy's healthy. He's rational, in quotations. He's only nine years old. So I couldn't imagine any of the eight children that I had. Now, you know, people told me years ago when I first got a computer, one of the things that would come across my email was that, Jesse, you are one of the major causes for overpopulation in the world. You need to be ashamed of yourself for having so many kids. <laughs> my kids turned out pretty well, okay? They, they, they really, they, they really did. I, you know, uh, no, I couldn't say no thanks to me, but a lot of you guys will say, no, 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 no. You played a small part in it. I probably did. Their mom probably played the larger part. But my kids, you know, I, ha- I have to say it, never went to jail. <laughs> not, not as far as I know. Never burned up any department stores. Never, <laughs> never created the kind of mayhem and confusion and chaos. Not one time on my watch. Now, I have to ask your mom, Barb, did you ever have a time where one of them just jumped out of the paddy wagon and began to wreak havoc on society to where you had to uh, call the police? But think about it. What's going on with that boy? What would be your answer? What would be your answer? Is the problem with the boy or is the problem with his mama? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three nine. I'm trying to have a conversation with you. I'll take it deeper if you correspond with me. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. She called nine eleven on him. Now he's not even eleven. He's just nine. <laughs> All right. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I want to hear from you. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I've got two lines open. I'd love to get those lines filled on our present topic. The the basic monologue and uh, softball that I threw over the plate that I thought you would be able to just hit it out of the out of the park is this: Does God engage me in? 
on a propositional level with promises of rewards and judgments as a motivating factor to come to him, to love him and to obey him. Yes or no. If you know your Bible, you should know the answer. And if so, why do some say as so-called a more loving approach would be to not tell people what's right and not tell people what's wrong and definitely don't try to lure them to do what's right by rewards or threaten them with punishments as a consequence of disobedience. And then I shared with you the story of the little boy that we just heard about in the previous break. And my question is to you, where was the breakdown Was it with the child or with his mother? And, you know, if we were to just be elliptical about it, uh, the father's not around. So we got another problem there, potentially, right? Um, It's the problem on the part of the mother. It's the problem on the part of the child. It's the problem on the part of the society. It's the problem on the part of a culture that says, basically, you can't set boundaries. You can't set parameters. You can't lure them to do what's right with rewards. You certainly cannot punish them for disobedience as consequences and therefore expect to have children that will grow up recognizing boundaries affirming right and wrong, being clear on consequences and expecting rewards when they do the right thing. What kind of culture would be if all parents basically operated on the premise of I can't tell him or her what to do? And when they have a tantrum, because they will, whenever you say no, but don't know how to back that no up. See, I've said it in our church like this. I've told the mothers this. I've told the fathers this. When you have those cute little babies, they're really gods, not yours, gods. They really are. All the fruit of the womb is mine, saith the Lord. And they're on loan from God to you. And you actually are going to give account to how you actually raised those little kids. Now, mamas and daddies, you guys have heard me say this before. What are those little bitty babies? Gorillas. Well, they're monkeys when they start off that way. Ah, Jesse, don't say that. Well, uh, you don't have to be racist with that term. I'm black, okay? They're little cute little monkeys. Little little power packs. Little, 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 little balls of energy. But at some point, the little cute little monkey is going to grow up to be a gorilla. Now, some dads know what I'm talking about, and a lot of you mothers know that there's a certain time and place and point in which in your dealing with your children, they are out of your control. Now, will you want that to have occurred when they are 18, 19 years old and can make decisions with a clear conscience, aware of the consequences that society will impose upon them or foist upon them and demand upon them because now they are of adult age? Or will you want them to have uh, the kind of uh, misinformed, emotionally driven, self-centered, narcissistic, um, potentially sociopathic behavior patterns of having neglected to train them up properly in the youth so that they just start acting a fool at nine and end up having all three first responders having to come out and restrain them externally? Now, let me put it this way. Do you want your children restrained externally or restrained internally? Do you want to raise kids who know how to operate out of an ethical break that is uh, informed by and built up on solid principles of character, virtue and nobility and discernment, by the way, an ethical break that knows how to stop short of crimes and uh, moral and ethical violations? That's called a good conscience, by the way. Or do you want them to learn only by authorities outside of them imposing upon them restraints because they're behaving in a dangerous and antisocial and criminal behavior? Got one line open, one 367 5329 Does God engage men with the promise of rewards and judgments as a motivating factor to come to him, love him, and obey him? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Let me go to line number uh, uh, two and talk with Kiana and San Leandro. Kiana, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you? Fine. How are you? Great. Did you hear my conversation? Yes, 
I was calling in to comment on the story about the parent who called 911 on her nine-year-old child who was having a tantrum. Okay. Have you ever done that before? Uh, Have I had a tantrum? No. (laughs) Okay, hold on. Let me see. Hold on. At nine years old, have you ever had a tantrum at nine years old, Kiana? I don't remember having a tantrum because my parents didn't play. You clown in public, you got laid. Ooh, ooh. Ooh. Put toe up, Ooh. and that was the end Ooh. of it. It was at the end of it. Didn't do it no more. That means that your mom and dad exercised personal judicial uh, rights over you. Yeah, because my dad we, we read the book of Proverbs and different. Oh, he and he exploited and the Proverbs on was, you too. It was the rod of correction dries out all foolishness. Ooh. Bear to rise. You hate the child. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Because if you don't honor your parents and authority, you're not going to be able to honor laws. And did it work? Authority outside of your home. Did it work? Yep. Yep. Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you? Records for me. No jail. No drugs. No alcohol problems. A bunch of crazy stuff. So. All right, you now you know you, you so you knew where I was going in my basic uh, proposition of does God yeah. uh, engage me with promises of reward for for obedience, love, and uh, yielding to Him, and judgments as a consequence thereof. And the disconnect between a biblical model of a loving God and a righteous God and a holy God imposing upon His creatures that which is good and just is actually being done away with everywhere we go. And that account of the child was simply an example of where we are headed. Right, because that kid doesn't have any boundaries or structure. I mean, even with my own son, he know better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everybody wants to sit up here and, and treat their children like they're these little adults and they get to think for themselves with no consequences and no direction. And you have politicians and lawmakers dictating how people should discipline their kids. And then people wonder why our country has the biggest incarceration rates in the world because parents weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing in terms of discipline. Your kids get out there, they get in trouble, they go to jail, they get locked up. And then what? Preach it, girl. Preach it. I don't have time for that. It's a waste <laughs> it's a waste of time. It's a waste of life. You could be doing so much better things with your life and living for Christ and doing all this other extra stupid stuff that ain't gonna get you nowhere and Kiana, how old are you how old are you ticket to hell. Kiana, how old are your kids right now? I just have one. He is Eleven. Okay, eleven. Perfect. All right. So, in light of what we're talking about today, and I, you're you're one of my, uh, you know, longtime listeners, and I'm I'm glad to be hearing from you again. Uh, in light of what we've been talking about today, if you were to measure yourself in relationship to that debacle, I I would call it a debacle. Um, how are you doing? Are you are you thankful to have adopted your parents' framework and paradigm of disciplining your child in, in, in hopes that your child also might stay on what we call the straight and narrow way that leads to life um, and life more abundantly? Are you are you hopeful of that model or does that model uh, have some problems for you? And are you struggling with that? Because a lot of parents do. It's not a problem for me because I've, I've, I've been blessed to see what happens to children who don't have that structure, Right. who don't have that biblical and Christ-centered foundation. Amen. Amen. Growing up, like I've seen, I've sat here and literally seen it yep. play out Yep. from the time I was a little, from the time that I was about my son's age mm-hmm. up until now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they didn't make it. Yep. I agree. And it's just, it's just, and it's just, it's just sad. Yep, I agree. Really sad, and I don't want my son. I want him to be able, you know, to live for Christ and do the things that he's supposed to be doing, and enjoy and enjoy the benefits that God, um, God says will occur when we walk uh, in humility to love the Lord our God to walk in humility and uh, and 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 do the things that are right. There are there are benefits, a wonderful accruing uh, outcome to that kind of uh, ethic and uh, standard when 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 we follow God's ways. You believe that? I believe that as well. Uh, tell me your son's name. Where are you going? David, the, he David, that's me. my boy, David. Okay, now, so now, 
Oh, okay, give me your last statement because I want to say something. Then I got to let you go. I'm way overdue. Because ultimately, if you're following Christ, your goal is to, you know, get eternal life when you leave this earth. And a lot of the stuff in this world is not worth, you know, perishing your soul over. And people don't really understand. Everybody just caught up in what they can get financially and materialistic wise. And they're not thinking about those things. You're right, young lady. So here's what I'm going to say is let David know he got a whole bunch of people praying for him right along with uh, my grandkids because they're all the same ages now. And um, and uh, we're praying for you, too. Uh, we've got a great praying audience on the Monday program. And we um, we support our sisters out there handling their business with those young, uh, burgeoning, growing uh, uh, gorillas in the positive sense. Strong, vital young men that can be a positive influence in a world that needs them. So thank you for your call. I got to take a break, you guys. I'll be back. Corey, you hold on. Deborah, you hold on. Titus, you hold on. Uh, this is the Monday edition of Lifeline. One line open, one 367 I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back. The time is 5.55 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let's try to get to a few more callers. Let's go to line number three and talk with Titus in Richmond. Titus, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing? I'm great. What's your question, comment, or observation about our topic, sir? The comment and observation, I'm going to say as above and so below. Okay. When you're growing a plant and when you put the plant in the ground, you put it in the best ground you possibly can with all the potting soil and the fertilizer and all the nice things, the nutrients and the, the oxygen and all that. You give it all that, but you carefully monitor the plant of any abnormal growth. So the easiest thing to do when the plant is small is to nip it in the bud. Any abnormal reactions to the plant not growing normally then that plant should be nipped in the bud in that place. You know, and I say judge nothing before it's time. Judge Mathis was a little rough on his mom, and look how he turned out. So God works with different people at different times. Uh, and I need some help on that scripture. What did it say? Provoke not a child? Yes. First of all, your analogy is great. Uh, we want to plant the seed in the best soil possible uh, with the hope of it actually producing good fruit. That's a principle. It's not an axiom. As the proverb says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And in his old age, he will not depart from those principles or those principles will not depart from him in a more uh, grammatically uh, correct construction, which means that um, Titus, when we actually teach our ch- children the word of God, if they should uh, decide to explore the world, they can go, but they're going to also have to take the word of God with them. And, and therefore, they're going to have to wrestle with, they're going to have to wrestle with biblical truth in a world of darkness. So we will have done our job recognizing that our children are simply a stewardship on our part. And therefore, the best thing we can do is to make sure that they know that they are ultimately gods and not ours, but they have been uh, given to us on loan, and therefore um, we're going to do the best we can to model before them uh, a path of righteousness and to model before them the way of eternal life. Now, getting back to the uh, the, so the text, right, getting back to the text of provoking not your children to wrath in Ephesians chapter 6, which is where you are coming from, it, it, it would be a corollary from the Old Testament as well. Uh, a relative to how we are to engage our children with the objective of not disregarding their constitution. So in my experience, Titus, there is a reciprocal relationship that is to be had between the parents and the children, i.e., i.e., I need to be aware of and sensitive to the basic personality Uh, of that child that I'm dealing with relative to how they comprehend, how they process and how they react to instruction. 
Um, I, I, I can give them the overall general principles and I can leave it at that because I will assume that my children are at least, if not more, intelligent than I am. Uh, making that assumption, therefore, uh, basic parental love and care is going to always involve telling them what's right, telling them what's wrong, telling them how to um, how to benefit from an appropriate uh, interaction with authorities, with adults, and that there are consequences, uh, positive and negative, predicated upon how the children respond to instruction. That is the basic overall argument that I'm rendering when I gave the proposition. Does God engage me in with promises of rewards and consequences of threats when we do not come to him in uh, loving compliance, uh, assuming him to be a loving God, good God, and a righteous God relative to him wanting us to live to live well and to prosper and to enjoy what he has provided in our society. Now, you have people who will um, so move to interpret Ephesians 6 on this level that the idea of provoking your children is the idea of making sure that you don't at any time or any way make them mad. Now, that's right. not what that's not what that means. Right, right. God help us. That's correct. Watch this. God help us if we fall prey to a kind of humanistic, man-centered approach to communicating a biblical worldview to our children that basically tells them if they don't like what I said, they can have a tantrum. If they don't like what I said, they can be passive-aggressive. If they don't like what I said, they can take up a number of psychological and emotional maladies that begin to produce an aversion to authority and that somehow that that lies with me or lies with you. That's not what that text is saying. What that text is simply saying is that, and I'll I'll give you an axiom that I'll give everyone and then then I'll, I'll let you go. Here's the axiom. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Mm-hmm. Rules with relationship lead to righteousness. Mm-hmm. So if I am imposing rules upon my kids, but not at the same time engaging them on a relational level where they know I love them, care about them and see them for who they are, they may be provoked to rebel against me to get my attention, to let me know that they, that I am not employing a relational construct or framework to engage them in rules. Uh, and in that, at that point, I will be provoking them because they are invisible to me and they should not be invisible to me. Our kids are very important, very, very important. Rules with relationship will lead to the influence of righteousness because our kids will know that the prime motive for our wanting to teach them correctly and educate them in a worldview that will help them live a righteous life is, uh, is, is the ultimate goal. And so they will strive to employ at least part, if not all, of what we say as they grow older and become much more autonomous and inclined to learn how to implement the principles that parents taught them that were right uh, in order for them to practicate the life that's in front of them. So that's what that means. So I'm going to close it well, like that, this. You know, well, well, you know, and that I learned a lot from what you said. And it does say this. It says, it is the goodness of the Lord. That leads to repentance. repentance. Yes. And it is not his wish that any should perish, but all that should come unto eternal life. And and uh, I was talking to my children when they did something that struck. So we did have a talk, and even in grown people. Sure. The wise man hears unto wise counsel, but the fool he shall not hear. Right. And he'll just remain in that consort until something come against him to shake him from that pole. And I hope that we are the ones who lead them back in with love and, and example. That's why our example has to be yay or nay. We can't be in the middle of the post when we tell them, well, you, you can do that sometime. No. And I didn't mean provoke them to anger. I mean, when you don't correct that, it provokes them opposite action towards you because it's not like it almost like it's not tame, like you're training training an animal to have discipline. If you don't, in those areas, he will be out of control, like a horse. If you don't break it, we have to have more control in the Word of God than we do in actions of violence, 
and uh, obtuse words and cussing kids out and all that stuff like that, and 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 be like God is to us. I, I totally agree. Suffering and loving. I totally agree. I, I I really wouldn't add to anything that you said there at all. I would simply affirm that our kids will be provoked if we say one thing and do another. They will absolutely be provoked because the way truth is inculcated is both taught and caught. Our kids are definitely going to be watching whether or not mom and dad live out the gospel that they are, um, are communicating to us. Brother, that's real well. I think you already have the answer to the problem or the challenge of that text, provoke not your children to wrath. I think you got it well. The Proverbs uh, are fitted on your lips. And, uh, and may you and I, as fathers and grandfathers, that's where I am now. You might be there too. Uh, continue to live out the gospel in a way that our kids will at least, and this is the end game of parenting, respect us because they know that we are taking them seriously because we're taking God seriously because we're taking our lives seriously. Listen, thanks for the call, my brother. I've got to take a break. When I come back after this break, I'll be engaging you with a young man I told you that I'm looking forward to talking with, Mr. Todd Davis. Around some of these very same issues, what can we do for our kids uh, to give them a pathway for success, particularly in the context of education, (laughs) by which when they conflate both their education in terms of academic uh, learning and disciplines that will prepare them and arm them for the world and a biblical worldview that will um, prepare them to do that with God on their side. How important is it that we make sure that our school systems uh, give our children the best chance that they possibly can have? Um, I want you to stay with me. This is going to be a great uh, conversation that I'm going to have with this young man. And um, I want to know what you have to think about it as well. You're listening to the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistan. I'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 